Hello, and welcome to the Mericast, the show that puts you on the fast track to business confidence. Our guest in this podcast, Robert Clay, is a man full of entrepreneurial energy. Ideas and answers just seem to fizz out of him, and his latest and possibly greatest idea yet is all about a 628% growth rate. That's the average exponential growth that he has achieved amongst hundreds of his past clients. Robert's gone on to develop a formula to help businesses to use the right combination of strategies at the right time. These sorts of ideas come through the confidence of a great track record. But I started by asking Robert where his own confidence comes from. It turns out that his early years were not only highly formative, but also highly unusual. I think family background has something to do with it, because if I just mention that I didn't come from a, a confined culture where, you know, you expect to conform to certain norms. So that didn't exist in my life. Because I had one grandmother born in, in, in Malaysia from a diplomatic family, British family, but she was then raised in Belgium, speaking equally English, French, German and Italian. So I had another grandmother that was born in the UK, in London. I had a grandfather that was born in the United States, another one that was born in Peru. So there's this these, these various influences there that meant that I didn't have a stereotypical upbringing. It wasn't confined to the usual boxes that most, most people's lives might be. So, you know, for example, there's, there's a lot of people who've been born and raised and been schooled and lived a lot of their life within the same area. And that was not me. So I've lived in Africa, I've lived in Asia, I've lived in Europe, I've lived in the UK, and I spent a lot of time in the North, North America as well. So that would have had an influence. I was raised initially in uh, East Africa. And uh, when my family felt that it was going to become a bit dangerous, they decided to move to Canada. So I was then, you want to put it one way, I was then dumped on an island in the North Atlantic Ocean where I knew nobody, which is the UK, and <laughs> into a school at age eight. And for a year, I had, to, I had to pretty much fend for myself within this. So that was a pretty formative experience because at that age, I had to be pretty self-sufficient. And my parents, in the end, decided that they weren't going to settle in Canada. They eventually came and settled here. So I then was uh, living here. So another big formative experience would have been a school I went to. I was very lucky that both myself and my siblings were all admitted to probably one of the best schools in the world. And well, there's quite a few things remarkable about it. But one of the things was that it has it has produced more Olympic gold medalists than any other school in the world. Another thing remarkable about it is that they claim to be able to teach any written language in the world. Another thing remarkable is they claim to teach you any sport in the world, pretty much. And there are people who've gone there for like surfing scholarships. I mean, it's just a, a wide range of different things. So I mixed with a very wide range of people. So everything from a couple of the current kings in the world and heads of states, there's, there's a few of those that, that I mixed with at school, they were at school with me, right the way through to people who were really, you know, came from a background of, of immense poverty. And there's no way they could afford to be in a school like that. But what that school did was it would charge the very wealthy, the high profile people. An absolute fortune. It was the most expensive school in the world. But what that would do, that would subsidize it and make it possible for those that couldn't afford it to actually get the education at this school. So I was really lucky to get there. So that, that was your schooling, Robert. Uh, I'm interested in your early career and the ways that that shaped you. And also, at what stage did you sort of see yourself as, as an entrepreneur? Was it something you went into straight away or did you work for other people first? 
I've never worked for anyone else. <laughs> um, at, at age eight, I could see I could see that. So I had kind of ideas at that stage, and they were ideas that would never come to to fruition. But the the ideas were there. And don't ask me how that is, but I mean, I could see that at age eight. I can re- distinctly remember situations. So my intention when I left school was actually to do something completely different to what I've done. So I was going to go to the Royal College of Art in London to study automotive design, which was my passion. But I took a gap year, and in that gap year, I don't even know what put me onto it, but my dad had a vehicle made in Italy, which was less than three years old, and it was about to crumble into a heap of rust. And a lot of vehicles were being scrapped between three and six years old at that that time, which they're they're not anymore. And I decided, well, I would look to see what vehicle manufacturers are doing about this, because there's got to be something they could do about it. And it wasn't very impressive. I did actually contact some vehicle manufacturers and speak to them and said, well, you know, what, you're not doing very much about this. Why, why don't you do something about this? And I'd done a little bit of research and I could figure out some of the things they needed to do. And I discovered they were not going to listen to an 18 year old on this. And besides that, they had no interest whatsoever in doing something about this problem because their belief was that if they did something about it, people would keep their vehicles longer. Therefore, they wouldn't sell so many. So there's no way they were going to do it. And I don't even remember who it was, but someone in my life at that time said to me, well, if you have solved that problem, that is a, that is a problem that needs solving. You should go into business. Well, I had no business experience, obviously, and uh, I had no capital, but I borrowed a little bit of money from my dad, got going, proved the point and actually entered a very tough market because at this stage, the common effect had no intention to do anything about it, but we could create a treatment that could be applied to vehicles when they were sold. So I had to approach car dealers and, you know, they're a notoriously cynical group of people. Among, among the more cynical out there. And as an 18-year-old or 19-year-old by then, I had to convince them that, number one, what I had was worthwhile. Number two, they could sell it. And number three, people would buy it and all of these things. And that was a, a, a tough job. But I managed to do that. And I believe, talk about formative experiences, that was a very important formative experience because I had to compensate for my age by being very good at what I was doing. And there may be, that may be in tendencies in my personality anyway, but it was certainly enhanced by that because I had to prove my point and I had to show them and demonstrate to them very quickly that actually I could do a better job of this than they might ever imagine. And, you know, and then, and then there comes a time when you, you, you just pick up the first client and then the second client, the third client, and it kind of begins to develop very slowly. And then suddenly you get the breakthrough and, you know, I had one, one major client came on board and this is all probably within the first year, one major client came on board who really loved what we were doing. And they started, and, and they were a big four dealer. And at that time, Ford were the number one selling brand in the UK. And um, they had a big market share and they had a big corner of the country where they were where they were operating. And every vehicle pretty much they sold went through my process. And then we were doing pretty much every Nissan. Then we were pretty much doing every, you know, there were various brands that we were starting to do. And within three years, that ended up with something like, 60% penetration of the market I started in, which was Kenton Sussex, right. which to me was not remarkable because there's a whole country to go at. And there was, and I hadn't got hundred percent yet in the corner of the country I was operating in. So this was, this was in front of me, but what changed my perspective was when major companies like Valvino company, Burma Castron, other country companies are not so well known today, but were in that field started to visit me overtly or covertly to see what we were up to because we had this 
to them remarkable penetration of the market because combined every one of them had eight percent share nationally and we were doing 60 percent in this corner of the country so that got their attention and i was oblivious to this and that's why getting offers from some of these companies basically saying look you've got this fantastic process and it was a fantastic process it was way ahead of anything else out there you've got this fantastic process we've got global distribution put the two together we'd be number one in the market so they tried to lure me in with that and i still have the offer letters on file <laughs> and i turned them down but in some cases i agreed to provide some consultancy to them to help them meet certain standards which we had met that nobody else had met would you have described yourself as very self-confident at that point or were you just on a journey as far as you're concerned and all these wonderful things are happening to you I mean, was that was that something that derived from a confidence that was innate or, or were you given the confidence by the successes you had initially I think I'm lucky that I was never beaten down and had that taken out of me from childhood. So I always had the belief that I could do what I set my mind to. And this is where when people say, how do you motivate yourself? It's not an, it's not an issue for me. I, I've long since figured out that. Well, I think in my teens, one of the things I realized, and this was a very important realization, is that so it's something like 95% of the things people worry about never even happen. And because of that, and I might have read that somewhere, because, of, because I'd come across this, I thought, well, what is the point of worrying? You only shorten your life and make life worse. And, and I'm very much the person that looks forward. I don't look back. I'm not sitting there think, regretting things. I've done things that haven't worked. I've done things that have worked. I don't regret the things that haven't, that haven't worked because I've learned from them. And that's just been part of the, the, the journey moving forwards. So at some point in my teens, I abandoned the idea of worry, and it has really not crossed my mind seriously ever since. If it makes sense to me, and I can see how to get there, then I'll do it. So if we think of you as the, the younger Robert Clay, and he's, he's, he's decided, made a conscious decision that he's not going to worry about stuff, and he has the confidence and things seem to be going well, were your challenges, if you like, the lessons that you had to learn along the way, which I know is something which would be interest to our listeners, were they at the other end? I mean, were you, did you do things because maybe you were overconfident? I mean, were there kind of things where you tried it and it didn't work? And was that the reason uh, or, or near scrapes where things you got away with because you were actually pushing yourself and you weren't inhibited by worry in the way that many people are? Oh, I've made some wrong decisions that cost me uh, in lots of ways along the way but equally there's I've learned a lot from those things I don't think you go through life without that and you know I, I have to stop and think about it because I, I don't dwell on the past so so it's not something that I carry around in my head every day and I'd have to probably think to think of what they are I mean I can think of one or two things off the top of my head and I'm sure there are others that I kind of just left behind because I'm too busy moving forwards so if, if some, someone who knows me very well describes me as being at my happiest when I'm in full flow, which characterizes the way I'm, I drive from A to B. When I get in the car, I want to just get to my destination and anything in my way is, is, is breaking my flow. And she made this comment to me one day. She says, you know, this is you. This is you all over. You're just... You just like to keep flowing forwards. My my other half, I'm, I'm always having to say, so you know, just just get on with it. Or someone's, let's say, blocking my way. Just get on with it. Just get on with it. You know, why dawdle around? There's something to do. Let's just get on with it. And I think that's kind of been my mantra throughout my life. Just get on with it. And I don't really look back. I learn from things, but I don't look back. So the Robert Clay car is is one which is top gear and no reverse. Yeah, I, I would say so. I think that's a good analogy. Is there a particular skill or attribute that you've found really difficult to learn in your entrepreneurial journey? Something that 
you might have struggled with? And is it something you just outsourced to somebody else to do because you recognised you weren't good at it? Or was there something that you think, well, yes, I I am going to master that, that particular skill? I mean, everybody has their strengths and weaknesses. I think what I'm able to do that I've been told a lot of people can't do is I can see the big picture and I can see over the horizon with things. So I can see a trend and I can see where it's going to end up. And I've been accurate about that for many, many years. I mean, there's things that uh, I could see when I was 10 years old, eight years old, that, that happened, happened in the, you know, for unknown, let's say unknown things to happen, which then became world phenomena. So I've, see, I've seen these things happening uh, all my life. So I can see where things are going. I can also see the detail and I can connect the dots. I can connect between the two. Now, I'm told one of the people who who sought me out and came to visit me in London was the guy who worked for Steve Jobs and was the guy who came up with the Think Different campaign that Apple did, which was considered to be one of the most iconic advertising campaigns ever. And he used to sit 10 feet away from Steve Jobs in, in the Apple office. And he said, when he got to know me, he says, you've got certain qualities that I've only ever seen with Steve Jobs before. And that is a command of the detail plus the big picture. Now, someone like Elon Musk has that. And he has a big picture command that is beyond any normal mortal's ability to comprehend, uh, it seems. But he also is in total command of the detail. So that is one thing I have. So I'm suppose, I suppose that if I can see, if it makes sense to me, something that I need to take this action or do that, or I can see this opportunity, I will see what it is. I will figure out, I can work backwards from there to what needs to be done and I can get dive into the detail. And then I can work on the detail, get the detail right. And by getting the detail right, we can actually make it happen. No, but it's a fascinating answer because I think uh, although that both those things come to you, I would I would suggest that they don't come naturally to a lot of people. So it's, that's why I'm, I guess, asking the question that some people have the big picture vision, but not the detail, or some people have the detail, but not the big picture vision. But it sounds like pretty much that that is something you've always had to, rather than learnt over time. Now, there are things I do, I, I prefer not to do. I can turn my hand to a lot of things, but there's lots of things that I prefer not to have to do. I don't like to do routine things, for example. Now, there's a lot of people who don't like to do routine things, for sure, but I really am not the best person to do it because it's not that there's, I don't suppose it's that boredom would set in because I could probably do it and do it well, but there's more to life than doing that. And so I would try to delegate those. If I'm in a position to delegate those things, I would delegate those things. And one of my most best experiences, actually going back to my first business. So my first business was corrosion prevention for vehicles. I'll just actually just complete that story. That went on. We started franchising it. So we grew all over the UK. And we in seven years, it went global. And there's an interesting story about how it went global. But then alongside that business, I set up a second business. So when I was 23, Triplex, the glass manufacturers, not even sure if they're still around anymore, but they they certainly a big name for many years. But Triplex came up with a Reliance Scimitar, which they put on a motor show stand, which had a complete glass back end of it and glass roof. And Prince Philip ended up driving that vehicle for quite a few years. That became his car. And Anyway, they put this on show at motor shows to show what can be done with glass. And I thought, this is lovely. I would like a glass top in my vehicle. I'd like to let the light in, but I don't like these horrible sunroofs have at the time, fabric things, which people could put a knife through and they leaked and they creaked and all this sort of stuff. So I approached Triplex and said, you know, could you put one of these into my car? And at the time, and this is a long time ago, they quoted me a quarter million pounds if I wanted that because it's not a production item. They couldn't be produced in any scale at that time. But this got my got me going. And I thought, okay, there is. I, I would like this. I'm sure other people would like this. 
so that's where I invented the glass, the panoramic glass roof. That is now pretty well known. And it is now in the form that I originally envisaged it, with an entire glass top. It couldn't be done at the time. Right. So we started with things that were like a panel, the size of a sunroof panel in the roof. And we would fit these into vehicles. And that, that went global in three years. Because there were people who, you know, just people, it just took off. Anybody who saw it liked it. And what we did is we came up with a method of, of, of fitting it that was very, very simple. So it was made in essentially two parts. Each part had multiple components to it, but there was essentially a top part and a bottom part. And all you had to do is cut the hole, put the top part and match it up with the bottom part, screw it together, put the headliner over it, bingo, done. So we turned a job that was maybe a, a, a one or two day skilled job for somebody fitting hundreds of pieces into the roof of a vehicle to something that would take about 45 minutes. Mm. So that made the whole process a lot easier it, and it just took off. So, yeah, so that's, a, so that's where, where, where that was. And then we, we ran into a situation where we need a lot of capital in a hurry to, to do with the sunroof, which is when I was I, I had been approached already by one of the companies in the corrosion prevention field I was in, a global company, who'd said to me, uh, approached me one day and said, look, we love what you're doing, but we'd rather be working with you than against you. How about a partnership? We've got the capital, you're going to need it. And we, we politely declined. But uh, later when we ran into a particular which a particular problem, which is a very big problem, and back to them said, are you still interested? And they said, look, we'll, set, we'll send over the, we're sending over Jet to collect you right now. Mm. And we, <laughs> we entered into a discussion, we ended up merging the two businesses. Uh-huh. That led to their saying to me the reason we're really interested is the big prize is to get the vehicle manufacturers to do this process the corrosion prevention process in production and we've not been able to get them to budge on this that we can't get them to do it but we believe you might be able to so they put me they got me to 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 do this and in nine months we got the first vehicle manufacturer on board and i knew which dominoes had to fall to make the other dominoes fall because if certain brands did this others would have to do it to even remain in contention in the marketplace it was they'd have to do it so in four years, we got every car, truck, bus, and aircraft manufacturer on the planet as clients. And how we did it, you know, there's the stories within that as well. So that business became number one in the world in its field right. at that stage. And then when we got all the clients, there was nothing more for me to do. So that becomes a bit routine. And lots of people were approaching me to do consulting for them. So I ended up doing that. So as soon as something becomes routine, then the interest wanes and, and you're looking off on the next big adventure. I suppose so. But then people were approaching me with all kinds of weird and wonderful things that they had problems that they couldn't solve that they hoped I might be able to solve. And, and strangely enough, I managed to a lot of the times. Mm. But usually the answers were already there. It's not that I came up with an original idea. I just looked in places they didn't look right. for the answers. And things. there are certain things done in, in certain industries routinely every day of the week and have been done probably for decades that are not done at all in other industries. And that is often the solution to that someone's looking for without realising that's what they're looking for. After, after there was nothing more I could really do there, you know, he's just maintaining what was there. I, did, I went into doing the consultancy and I felt imposter syndrome. I yes. didn't recognise it as that particularly at the time, but I felt imposter syndrome because people wanted whatever it was they believed I had. They believed I was good at marketing. Well, I'd had no formal training in marketing and had no qualifications in marketing. I had no labels for the things I had done. They were just things that made sense to me. And I looked at what was happening around me and I could say, oh, that's a good idea. I could borrow this idea and adapt that for what I'm doing. It was nothing much more sophisticated than that. But it came together to build up quite a body of know-how about how we could make these things work with no labels. So I felt, okay, I'm lacking something here. I felt a bit of a fraud where people were 
were wanting me to help them with this and that. And I thought, I'm not qualified. There's other people that are. Considered doing an MBA, decided against it. And I chose a different path. And the path I chose was that there were certain people I had identified over a number of years who were really brilliant at what they did. They were absolute authorities in a particular niche of this or that. So I decided to get to know these people in person. A lot of them were not in this country. Some There are some that are in this country, but they were scattered around the world. And this was before it was that easy to, to connect with people around the world. But I, I started connecting with some of these people. I started to get to know them. Some of them I was interacting with multiple times a week and they come in two varieties. There are the people that are the real deal and there are the people that are just a facade. You know, they're not, they're not what they claim to be. And there's a very interesting way to tell the difference, which I discovered. Um, the people that are just a facade were pretty tight with their information. They, would, they wouldn't give much away. And I learned that that's because they don't actually have that much to give away. They make great claims about things, but there's not much they actually can give away because uh, it's not there. And the people that were the real deal were very generous with their knowledge. They were very approachable. They were very friendly. They loved the fact that I was taking an interest in what they were doing. And they were very generous with their knowledge. And they know, the people who are real authorities at something know that the more you know about something, the more there is to know. And they don't mind giving you away a lot of stuff that will be very valuable in any, any other way. What I was very good at was taking in this information, organizing it, structuring it, putting it together to make sense of it so that I would have information coming from multiple sources and I could start to put it into like a master, uh, I'd have a, like a master plan, which I'm still working on, it's even now, 27 years later, and this is still coming still coming together, it probably never end, where I would see how things interrelated, how things could react, I got labels for things I hadn't been doing. And this became the beginning of my research into how do you take any business to market leadership. And at the same time, was we were doing some consulting with businesses and we were teaching them some of the stuff that I'd known from my own experience, other stuff I'd learned, and we then helped them put it into practice. And we got good success with that. And that evolved into mentoring, where I was mentoring groups of entrepreneurs, 20, 25 at a time. And we would meet in very nice country house hotels four times a year in these groups. And there was enormous bonding between the different people in the groups. And we had enormous progress. And I delivered another installment each time we met. And I wrote books, which were only made available to them, which actually then, you know, we cover three topics each time. And I would give them a book around each of those topics every time and they went away with those books and what was really interesting was that they would all get the same input from me when we would meet but they all are different people they all have different priorities they have different businesses they bring in different experiences to it so the way they interpreted what I was giving them would have been unique in each situation three months later when we meet again and you talk to them about what we talked about last time you've got completely different and unrecognizable interpretations of what I gave them because there are other variables that come into play and this was really Really, this was really interesting because some of the most amazing things started to happen and then they started to cross-fertilize with each other. You know, one of them would, would think, well, this idea doesn't really apply to me. And they kind of dismiss that idea, but they say, I'll focus on this. And then they get together the next time uh, with everybody and they say, well, you know, what have you been doing the last, last three months? Well, we've had a 300% growth from doing this. Ah, I didn't think that, I didn't see how that could be used could, you know, in, in my business. Oh, yeah, 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 it could use it like this. You know, it, it works really well. And then this, the combination of the know-how that I developed and was continuing to develop, plus the cross-fertilization between the entrepreneurs that were uh, on the program produced absolutely remarkable results. And that, that, that's what we're talking about, you know, with the 628% and the 2.78 billion. 
So I can see that you know, there's a lot of there's years and years of research and insight and conversations and knowledge that has built up and built up to this 628 moment, if you like. So I mean, I'm sure that some of our listeners will want to get in touch, you know, uh, about this. How could they? How could they do that? First of all, the website is marketingwisdom.com. That's marketing w i z d o m marketingwisdom.com. That will that gives people an introduction. So we have a couple of things that are visible there. We offer somebody, uh, we, we're doing two things. One, we have what we call a six to eight percent growth club. It's a Facebook group that we've got for people who are interested in growing their business. And then we will give them various resources in there that will help them to grow their business. Some people are ready for more. And obviously what I really do is, is the more bit of it. But when they're ready, and we don't want to impose this on anyone before they're ready. So we want to give them something that's going to be useful to them. And if at some point further down the track, they think, okay, this is this is something that I need in my business. This is something that's going to really help me. Then they can reach out, and I will I will give them a a free strategy session, and we will look at their business. We can look at their numbers, and we can look at what combination of things can produce given kinds of results, and we can talk them through the way that works. And that that's quite eye opening for people because there's some very clever ways of doing things that most people are not aware of that give you, you know, multiply the results. I'm on LinkedIn. Just look up Robert Clay. It's um, linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash Robert Clay. Um, you can connect with me there. That is, that is how people connect. But then we've developed a process to ensure that people can actually achieve those results in, in record time. And it's really exciting when you see how rapidly people do move forward. And um, I'm both exhausted and excited. I'm exhausted because <laughs> I'm trying to develop stuff further that, I, that I'm passionate about, that I've already got quite a lot of knowledge about, but there's extra nuances that you never think about. So I'm trying to, in a way, anticipate everything. Well, there isn't enough time in life to do all of that, to do that completely. So that's a job that will never be finished. But it's really interesting how mind-expanding it is. Well, so many things about that interview strike me. Robert knew he wanted to be an entrepreneur from an early age, and he also made a conscious decision from a young age never to worry about anything. And then there's his firm focus on the here and the now, and his observation that true experts happily share their knowledge, because the more you know, the more there is left to know. So thank you, Robert, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate and review us through your usual podcast provider. And if you want to find out more about the Mericast or our business Meribor Media, you can find us on LinkedIn or email me at trevor.meriden at meribornmedia.co.uk. Don't forget to join us for our next episode. But until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>